For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. From Meat Eater's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Weekend Review, presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to steeldealers.com. Now, here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. Raccoons aren't known for having refined palates, but in Germany at least, the masked bandits have developed a taste for some of the world's best beer. Can't blame them for that. According to several German and British newspapers, raccoons have been breaking into homes and cities throughout Deutschland, damaging property, eating pet fish and rabbits, and even drinking beer. Some homeowners have reported over $10,000 in damages, and one raccoon was caught on video evading animal control outside the German parliament building. The German word for raccoon is waschbar, which translates literally to the bear that washes and undoubtedly has a slang meaning that we are not aware of. Be careful when you Google that one, kids. Voshbar likely comes from the common raccoon behavior of picking up food items at the water's edge and washing them between their paws. Raccoons are not native to Europe, but their populations have been increasing in recent decades. One German newspaper described them as a plague, and an estimated 1,000 raccoons live in Berlin alone. They've been spotted residing in boarding buses and state high schools, as well as scavenging in the city's allotment gardens. Germans should be forgiven for seeing something sinister in these fuzzy invaders. According to urban legend, raccoons were introduced to the country by none other than Hermann Göring, who is, uh, you know, a horrid, horrid history figure. Ugh. Anyway, history buffs will recognize that name as belonging to the founder of the Gestapo, uh, his lesser-known title was the Master of the Hunt for the Third Reich, and he allegedly released the animals to hunt them for their fur. Historians have disputed this account, but blaming Nazis is totally fine by me. Anyway, speaking of hunting, 
The German National Hunting Association says it's trying to control the surging population and has killed a record 200,000 raccoons over the course of the past year. Their efforts in Berlin were stymied, however, when the city's Senate banned raccoon hunting and instead encouraged residents to lock up their trash. As with most controversies like this, I ask, why not both? This week, we've got the Washington State Game Commission, public lands, and the ever-popular crime desk, but first I'm going to tell you about my week. And my week was super interesting. Flew out to Memphis in order to join Ducks Unlimited for their annual live briefing around the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Breeding Survey. This particular survey has been running since 1955, and to use the words of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the primary purpose of the Waterfowl Breeding Population and Habitat Survey, which of course is an acronym, WBPH, is to provide information on spring population size and trends for most North American duck species, several populations of Canada geese, tundra swans, and American coot, and to evaluate breeding habitat conditions. This survey helps to guide waterfowl management, i.e. our yearly waterfowl regulations, and habitat management. The survey is conducted by airplane, helicopter, and ground over a 2 million square mile area that covers principal breeding areas. A couple of really interesting takeaways, of course, and all of this is on the Ducks Unlimited YouTube channel, as well as the uh, Ducks Unlimited uh, Canada YouTube channel. But all of these takeaways just reinforce the value of habitat. One of these takeaways, for instance, is that water is only a component. If an intermittent wetland, which as we all know is only sometimes wet, but vital to the survival of hatchlings, is tilled in the course of farming practices and then fills with water, it doesn't A, produce the food, or B, produce the cover for birds to survive so they won't use it. However, that water will activate the riparian plant seeds that are found in the seed bank in that soil. So given enough time and the proper conditions, that wet area which is just a mud puddle at this point, will eventually return to productive waterfowl production. But boy, would it be better if those areas were allowed to do their thing. Lots of programs that can help restore these areas on your farmer ranch through the NRCS, the Farm Bill, and state-level programs. So on top of the monetary incentives, you get the mental incentives of managing your property in a way that produces waterfowl, wildlife, pollinators, and a big old smile on your face when you get out there and fire up the combine. Numbers-wise, and this is speaking very generally, we are going to see a fine waterfowl season. We have some marginal drops in breeding populations of species and marginal gains, including an over 20% jump in surveyed pintail pairs, and what is not counted is young of the year, which hopefully have survived fat enough to make the flight down to see us from the northern tips of our flyways, to the southern tips at the bottom of the migration routes. I'll tell you how this information impacts old Snorticus and I. It, uh, it won't. We are hunters. We will be out as much as possible. If we see very few of a particular species over the course of our season, we won't try to pound on that species. We'll try to take limits of other species that seem to be in abundance, like gadwall, which is a darned tasty duck, as are late-season northern shovelers, both of whom, or which, are reporting great numbers. You know what? I'm getting excited. So excited, by the way, I'm heading to our local Gallatin Valley Ducks Unlimited uh, banquet this evening. Probably going to spend money I don't have on raffles, just like everybody else. Anyway, 
Last but not least, thank you so much for sharing our Auction House of Oddities for the Wildcat Bend Public Access Project we chose for this year's Land Access Initiative. Final numbers are not quite in, but even if you could not contribute a dollar to the LAI project this year, I'm sure you spread the word on social media, and that helps a ton too. I cannot thank you enough. Access, man. More land. Gotta have it for the future. Another great example of our community raising each other up gives me warm and fuzzies inside. Thank you so much. More to come on this, but uh, we better get on with the news. Washington State hunters were understandably up in arms last week when one of the members of the state's Fish and Game Commission said that hunters, quote, should be nervous. You may have already heard that clip, but I want to play Commissioner Melanie Rowland's comment in context. While she pays lip service to serving the needs of hunters, she also exemplifies the nationwide movement to marginalize hunters and anglers in the crafting of wildlife policy. Take a listen. At this point, we have a very significant portion of the public who want the Department of Fish and Wildlife to be conserving, protecting, perpetuating, and yes, preserving, because that's in our statute. We're following the law, and the law requires us to do that. And yes, you can interpret those words. They don't all have exactly the same meaning, but they are our statutory responsibilities. And there are many of us who believe that the commission and the department have not been fulfilling those statutory responsibilities when the basic focus and the basic constituency is hunters and fishers. That is not to say there is no room for hunting and fishing. Clearly, hunting and fishing is part of our statute, too. That is legal, and we are to manage it, and we are directed to manage it that way. So I understand that the hunters and fishers could be getting nervous, and I think they should be getting nervous because they have been pretty much in complete control for a very long time. This has been a debate in wildlife policy circles for many years, but it's coming to a head in Washington state. The commission will be voting later this year on charges to its conservation policy that many believe will open the door to further restrictions on hunting and angling in the state. The commission has repeatedly canceled the state's spring black bear hunt despite a total lack of evidence that the spring hunt presented any threat to the population. They made this decision based largely on the mindset Rowland articulates. Rather than maximizing hunting opportunities, the commission should consider the thoughts and feelings of the non-hunting public when making its decisions. Because anti-hunting activists are often the loudest voices among that non-hunting public, some commissioners believe they had a responsibility to cancel the spring hunt even though the science didn't demand it. At least that's how I read this situation, and I'm not alone. Justin Spruill volunteers with the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Armed Forces Initiative, or AFI, and he urged the commission to reject Rowland's stance and maximize hunting opportunities, especially for veterans. Some of our veterans are fighting a game of inches, and I, for one, want to give them every advantage that I can. When you reduce or close seasons for reasons that are not backed by science, you take away one more tool that my team or a veteran has when using outdoors for adjunct therapy. A government agency telling my members that they should be nervous 
when they're now back home and trying to readjust and finding a healthy activity to enjoy and a new mission in conservation, in my mind, is unacceptable. Great quote. I would love to have Commissioner Rowland on the podcast to give her the opportunity to clarify her comments. Would she consider herself anti-hunting? Does she plan to limit hunting opportunities even though our wildlife populations can sustain them? If she doesn't want to listen to hunters anymore, who does she want to listen to instead? I've reached out to the commission but have yet to receive a response. If anyone knows how I can get in touch with one of the commissioners, send me a note at ASKCAL at TheMeatEater.com. This is one of the most serious threats we're facing as hunters and anglers, and I guarantee this won't be the last time we touch on this topic. If you live in Washington State, now is the time to get involved. The commission will be voting later this year on the new conservation plan, and it's crucial you speak up and let them know that you don't want hunters and anglers marginalized. I'll keep you posted on those meeting times and let you know about ways to comment. Which of you listening right now took a class in school about family finances 101? No one? Me neither. Like the importance of a will or a college savings plan or even life insurance or estate planning, we have to know these things. But how do we figure it all out? That's why I'm excited to partner with Fabric by Gerber Life. Life insurance is important to me because I don't want to be a burden on anyone ever, especially when I'm dead and I can't chip in to, you know, lift heavy things and do stuff like that. That's why I have life insurance. And I know you don't want to be a pain in the ass because you're listening to my podcast. So get life insurance. Fabric by Gerber Life is term life insurance you can get done right here, right now. You could be covered from your couch in under 10 minutes with no health exam required. If you've got kids, and especially if you're young and healthy, the time to lock in low rates is now. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meatfabric.com slash cal. That's meatfabric.com slash cal. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash cal policies issued by western southern life assurance company not available in certain states prices subject to underwriting and health questions hey i just sat down with the owners and operators uh maui nui venison you've heard that name before because i've talked about them here on this podcast they're on a mission to balance access deer populations on maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. Now, it's wild axis deer, which is an invasive species, but this operation is monitored and observed by the USDA, and they can commercially sell axis deer. Last time I went out to uh, Maui to hunt axis, I did not kill one, which is where Maui Nui Venison would come in very handy for folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful and still want to have something in the freezer or uh, handy in the form of a snack stick that is as close to getting your own as you can get which is what Maui Nui Venison is. You can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com that's M-A-U-I-N-U-I, venison.com, and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it, and don't try it without On X. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL 
to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. Moving on to the crime desk. Wildlife criminals often escape jail time, but every once in a while they get what they deserve. This week saw several cases that landed poachers behind bars. In Wisconsin, for example, a 41-year-old man named Eric Fievel will spend five years in the clink for what one prosecutor called the biggest poaching case in the state of Wisconsin. Fievel and his partner, a man named Travis Vanderheiden, poached more than 30 deer since 2019. They spotlighted the deer at night and usually shot them with a crossbow. Game wardens first approached the pair after getting tipped off about a decapitated buck that had been left in a field. They pulled the men over after finding them driving around slowly at night, and the dynamic duo eventually admitted to their crimes. Fievel's lawyers said he first joined Vanderheiden because he needed food, but he continued with his crimes because he was, quote, fueled by greed. His plea deal got 45 of his 51 charges dismissed, but he was still hit with nearly $10,000 in fines and a lifetime revocation of his hunting license along with prison time. His partner is another story. Vanderheiden hightailed it to Texas as soon as he was charged, and he hasn't returned to face the music. Wisconsin can't extradite him because he isn't being charged with any felonies, but it's safe to say he won't be going to any Packers games if he wants to remain a free man. He's allegedly hiding out in the Texas panhandle town of Pampa, thanks to Andrew Whitman for sending us that story. Our next jumpsuit-wearing poacher is headed to jail for two years for poaching abalone and possessing fentanyl. 58-year-old Leroy Nichols Robles of Santa Barbara, California, admitted to poaching abalone and selling them on the black market. He says that's been his primary source of income since 2020, and he was caught on two separate occasions with bags full of the valuable mollusk. Leroy was first arrested in March with 31 abalone and over 15 grams of fentanyl. He was released, but then arrested again in April with 15 more abalone. He was convicted of being involved in a criminal black market abalone conspiracy, and he'll be spending the next 24 months in state prison. His sentence was likely so harsh because he's a repeat offender, and those Northern California folks don't mess around when it comes to abalone. Big thanks to listener Alyssa Sarvinsky for sending us that story and a big hello to her fisheries and aquaculture class. A New Jersey man will be spending 30 days in jail for repeatedly violating wildlife laws and ignoring previous sentences. Lane Angus had already had his hunting license revoked in 2021, but decided it would be a good idea to kill an 8-point buck in October of 22. Game warden seized Angus's deer and rifle and hit him with two misdemeanor charges. Subsequent investigation revealed he had also spotlighted a deer and shot it from a vehicle. He pled guilty to the charges but failed to pay the fines as required by his plea agreement. A warrant was issued for his arrest and he found himself back in a squad car in July of this year. A judge ordered him to spend 30 days in jail, quote, due to his continued disregard for the court and state environmental conservation law. If I was a betting man, I'd say there's a fair chance we'll hear about old Angus again on the podcast. But, you know, prove me wrong, Angus. Prove me wrong. Moving on to the Wolf Desk. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service announced last week it would begin introducing red wolves to an area along the North Carolina coast again. I guess you might call this a re-reintroduction. The Fish and Wildlife Service didn't make this decision on its own. The agency agreed to publish and implement annual red wolf release plans for the next eight years as part of a settlement with wildlife advocacy groups. The settlement calls for more wolves on the landscape, 
coyote mitigation efforts, and programs to reduce human-caused mortality. Red wolves were placed on the endangered species list in 1973 and declared extinct in the wild in 1980. In 1986, the Fish and Wildlife Service established a non-essential experimental population in North Carolina. They put wolves in the Albemarle Peninsula. Go ahead and write in to ASKCAL, that's ASCAL at TheMeatEater.com, and tell me how to pronounce Albemarle. Anyway, intensive management was needed to make sure that that project was a success. Believe it or not, coyotes are one of the biggest threats to red wolves, not because coyotes kill wolves, but because coyotes breed with them and create wolf-coyote hybrids. And let's be honest, the coyotes are getting a bad rap here because we all know it takes two to tango. Okay? That's how it works. Ask your mommies and daddies. This phenomenon, known as genetic swamping, would replace wolves with hybrids and eliminate what you might call a purebred wolf from the landscape. So biologists sterilized coyotes in the area for over a decade in the early 2000s, and the wolf population grew to over 100 animals. But then biologists noticed an uptick in wolves being shot by people. You might assume this trend was driven by local anti-wolf sentiment, and I'm sure there was some of that, but Dr. Mike Chamberlain told Meat Eater he believes the real explanation is less sinister. He says it was around this time that coyote killing became more trendy in whitetail circles and red wolves were being accidentally gunned down by coyote hunters. The wolf population wasn't very large to begin with, so it didn't take much mortality to exceed natural reproduction. Biologists weren't able to effectively combat this new threat, and the Fish and Wildlife Service gave up reintroduction efforts entirely in 2015. Dr. Chamberlain doesn't believe this new reintroduction program will be successful unless gunshot mortalities can be reduced. If anything, coyote hunting is more popular now than it was in the early 2000s, so the Fish and Wildlife Service will have their work cut out for them. They're scheduled to release details on this year's Red Wolf Management Plan on December 1st. In other wolf-related news, the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources recently released the revised draft of its 2023 Wolf Management Plan, the agency says the plan represents a shift in the DNR's focus from wolf recovery to the long-term future of wolves in the state. The plan does this by balancing two factors present in the management of almost every species, the maintenance of a healthy wolf population with the concerns of the people who have to live alongside those animals. The new plan updates the draft first proposed in 2021. Agency officials took public input into account, and they say the new plan adds clarity to several questions that were raised. For example, it includes a simple chart showing that as long as wolves are listed as endangered by the federal or state governments, only non-lethal control methods are allowed except in the case of human health and safety conflicts. Once the species is downgraded to threatened, lethal controls will be allowed. There is currently no hunting season in Wisconsin, but once wolves are listed as neither endangered nor threatened, a public hunting and trapping season will be permitted. When that season is opened, licenses will be issued on a zone-specific basis rather than for the entire state. While the plan advocates for an adaptive management strategy rather than a numeric population goal, it does put hard numbers on its aims. The updated plan calls for a statewide population of between 800 and 1,200 wolves. Fewer than 800 wolves would guide efforts to grow the population, while a statewide population of more than 1,200 wolves would lead to efforts to reduce the population. A survey released in September estimated that the statewide wolf population was at 970 individuals. This final draft of the plan will be voted on by the Natural Resources Board in October. 
Our final wolf story comes from California, where biologists say a new gray wolf pack was just discovered a full 200 miles south of the nearest known pack. The wolves were discovered in Tulare County in the southern Sierra Nevada mountains, and biologists say this is the farthest south wolves have been in California in over a century. The California Department of Fish and Wildlife first received reports of wolves in the area in July of this year. DNA analysis of hair and scat samples revealed evidence of at least five new female wolves in the area, which is why biologists believe this is an entire pack rather than just a few far-ranging loners. If you're wondering how an entire pack could form without anyone noticing, you should spend some time in the Sierra Nevadas looking for an intelligent, shy, mostly nocturnal animal. That'll give you some idea. Moving on to the public land desk. If a river floods someone's private property, should the public be able to access that flooded area by boat? That's the basic question the Wisconsin courts will consider over the next few months as one landowner's civil suit works its way through the system. A landowner named Thomas Rice is suing the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources for what he says is illegal and unconstitutional guidance related to public access of navigable waterways. Rice owns a parcel of land along the Rock River in southern Wisconsin. When this river floods, which it's been doing regularly over the past few years, some people drive airboats across his land. He doesn't claim that these folks are damaging property or doing anything else illegal, only that their presence is keeping him from enjoying his land. Wisconsin allows public access along waterways, even if those waterways go through private property. But the DNR has issued guidance that also allows the public access to flooded areas of private land. Rice argues that this guidance contradicts the Wisconsin Constitution and established law. He cites several court cases that permit the Wisconsin DNR to regulate only those waterways below the ordinary high water mark on any navigable waterway. Since his land is located above the ordinary high water mark, he claims the DNR has no right to give the public access. The suit says, quote, DNR's authority to implement and enforce the public trust doctrine is limited to navigable lakes, streams, sloughs, bayous, and marsh outlets. Flooded yards do not fit into these categories and are not subject to DNR's public trust jurisdiction, nor does the public trust doctrine authorize the DNR to regulate private wetlands above the ordinary high water mark. The DNR has declined to comment on this case specifically, but it has issued several documents that explains its stance on this issue. Basically, the agency has advised public land users that as long as they keep their feet wet, they're good to go. When the water level on a river or wetland or lake is low, the landowner has exclusive access to the land below the high water mark. However, when the waterway floods private land, the public can use that water as long as they keep their feet wet, either in a boat or using waders. DNR attorneys also allegedly told Rice's lawyers that they do not believe the courts have offered clear guidance on this issue. They say they do not have a regulatory role, and they have never advised any member of the public to access Rice's land. This is a sticky issue that may take a long time to sort out. I can see both sides, but it's worth pointing out a few things. First, if you look at Rice's land on Onyx, you can see it's covered in lakes, ponds, and wetland areas, some of which connect directly to the Rock River. The fact that these water bodies appear on satellite imagery suggests that this isn't just an occasional flooding. I found an article from 2021 where residents complain that the Rock River is constantly flooded due to an increasing amount of rain. In other words, we're not talking about a river that's usually well-defined and only floods occasionally. It's understandable why the public would assume it could travel across this area. 
In that same 2021 article published by Fox 6 Milwaukee, Rice is interviewed because he operates two hydroelectric dams on the Rock River in the town of Watertown. Rice says that the dams don't have much impact on flooding due to the land's topography, but isn't it just a little strange that the same guy who operates a dam in a town called Watertown is suing to have exclusive use of a wetland created by that flooded river? Maybe. I don't know. You tell me. Here's what I do know. Airboats are incredibly obnoxious. They are so loud. They're an incredibly awesome tool at the same time. If you're a user, operate with common sense. If you're going in there to, let's say, duck hunt, don't go ripping across this guy's flooded lawn at 4 a.m., all right? That's obnoxious. And, as you can see with this lawsuit, your preferred means of access could cause all of us to lose our access. From what I'm seeing here, great example of something that never should have gone to court. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. And remember to write in to A-S-K-C-A-L. That's A-S-K-A-L at TheMeatEater.com and let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods. You know I appreciate it. And as fall approaches, I cannot tell you how much I depend on a clean, quiet, battery-operated chainsaw underneath my truck seat. When you want to get to your hunting spot and there's a tree down across the road, don't you want to cut it out instead of turning around and going home? If so, track down a knowledgeable steel dealer near you. Go to www.steeldealers.com. They're going to get you set up with what you need, and they won't try to send you home with what you don't. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance Axis deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com and use promo code cal for 20 percent off your first order i'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill meat from those organs are among the most nutrient rich foods on the planet you can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.